good to see everybody, and I hope you're having a good holiday season, except for the malls and driving, but other than that, I hope you're having a good time. And I'm going to talk to you about hope, but I want to ask a real big question, where does hope come from? It's not arbitrary. It comes from something. And perhaps I'm going to give you some thoughts you've never considered about hope. Hope is a crucial element of life. Proverbs 13, verse 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. People can live 60 days or more without food, maybe three to four days without water, but they just can't live a few minutes without hope. Now, there are a lot of misconceptions about hope. You know, I hear people say a lot of times, well, brother, just hope in God. But uh, those are just simplistic Christian slogans. I mean, you've got to tell people why, and you have to tell people how. You can't just shoot off, well, brother, just hope in God. That doesn't mean anything to somebody who's hopeless, but we just spout it off of our lips. So I want to give you a couple of misconceptions, maybe three, about hope, and then I want you to discover a few places hope comes from. Dr. Henry Cloud, who is a clinical psychologist, a Christian clinical psychologist that I had the pleasure to be with several times in Malibu when I would preach there. The pastor that had the church has passed on, and uh, it's not there anymore. But I had a wonderful time learning from this man who's also a great author. Uh, One of his books that impacted my life was Boundaries, real practical, real good, simple reading. But he tells about playing golf when one of the players in his foursome wanted to talk to him about a relationship he was in and how he hoped it would lead to marriage. So Dr. Cloud asked him to explain the relationship. The man said, I'm really hoping it'll work out, but it's really tough right now, and I haven't been able to make it work yet. So Dr. Cloud asked him, what's the problem? And the man said, well, she's a great girl, but she's very controlling. When asked how controlling she was, Dr. Cloud said, that's really controlling. Then the guy said again, but I'm really hoping it's going to work out. When Dr. Cloud asked him how long they had been in this relationship, the guy said, eight years. But I'm hoping. Hoping for what, asked Dr. Cloud. Hoping it'll lead to marriage. Again, Henry Cloud says, why do you have hope? Well, just because she's so great. But you just said she was controlling. Yeah, she is. And Dr. Cloud's response was, after eight years, I think it's pretty hopeless. Now, when the guy asked why, Dr. Cloud responded for two reasons. Number one, because you're hoping for two things that don't go together. You're hoping to marry somebody who's not controlling, and you're hoping to marry her. That seems pretty hopeless because you have two incompatible desires. So let's take a look at about three misconceptions about hope that people have. One of them is that wishing and hoping are the same thing. They are not. We all have wishes and desires, maybe a career desire, maybe a relationship desire, and those can be good things. Some of you may be in a difficult marriage, a difficult business uh, situation, and you're wishing and desiring that it's different. Well, that's a good thing. But how do you figure out where your hope for those desires is going to come from? Because this guy had what he had. He was calling hope for eight years. But as Dr. Cloud listened to all the things he had tried for eight years, he just didn't have a lot of hope for this guy, even though it was a strong desire. 
So the first misconception is that because we desire something, we've got to keep hope alive in the desire itself. But there's a big difference in hope and desire. Wishing and desiring are good things, but they're very subjective. Hope, on the other hand, is a very objective thing, and it's rooted in objective realities you can stand on. It won't rock. Second misconception is that we think hope has to do with the future. But in reality, hope has absolutely nothing to do with the future. Hope has everything to do with your past. For example, how many of you have ever had God intervene in your life and turn something around for good that was bad? Just, just give me an idea. Yeah, okay, P- pretty, pretty good crowd here. Now, in Job's worst situation of life, he lost his family, his possessions, and his health. Yet he declared, though he slay me, I will trust him. I have no other option because I know this God. And if you study Job, you'll discover a man who had walked with God a long time. He had a history with God a long time before this trial. So he knew a lot about this God because he had a history. When you read in the Bible where God intervenes in tough situations and He's telling His people to have hope, He doesn't talk a lot about the future. He always gives a history lesson. Every time Israel faced an issue, God would go back to history and say, now listen, I want you to have hope in this situation because remember when you were in Egypt, how I delivered you out of bondage, and remember how I gave you water from a rock? And remember how I fed you with manna? And remember how your clothes didn't wear out? And remember how I defeated this nation that came against you? And he gets them to go back so that they will have hope for the future. If I did it for you then, I'm going to do it for you now. You have a right to have reasonable expectation. Why? I've got a history with you. I've never forsaken you. I've never let you down. So God says, I want you to have hope. He reviews history. You go to Hebrews 11, the chapter on faith, it tells the story of people and their history. So we who are reading it here in the 21st century can have hope. I love to hear what God's done for somebody else, particularly if I'm in that situation, because it gives me hope that He'll do it for me. And that's why testimonies are encouraging to people who are going through a problem. Tell your story. Where were you? How bad was it? What was going on? And what did God do for you? Tell that to people. Quit spouting off a whole lot of theology, and it gives people hope and encouragement to press on, that if God did it for you and God did it for them, God will do it for me. He's no respecter of persons, but you got to have a little bit of history. Now, let me tell you why some of you are positive and hopeful people. It's primarily because of your past. Let me give you an example. You have your first baby. When any baby first arrives, it's without hope. When there's no food or company or some toy, the baby would scream in despair. Why? Well, at the moment, it had no hope. The baby had no chapters of history to look back on in its experience in life. It had just arrived. That would encourage the child to know and expect that good things are coming when things are not so good at the moment. Hope is about good things are going to come, although at the moment things are not so good. And that's exactly what a church is supposed to be preaching. 
Good things are going to come, although it may look pretty bad at the moment. That hope isn't arbitrary. That hope is concrete, but it comes from a history of proven responses by our God. But in the earliest days of the life of a baby, no good thing has ever come. In fact, the only good thing they had, they lost at birth. The baby was at a constant temperature, swimming around in ambiotic fluid, fully nourished, 24 hours a day. Why, it's got it made. If it lacks something, it just takes it out of your body, mother. And now birth, it's over. It's gone. Now the baby feels hopeless. But over time, that baby's bad experiences are transformed into good experiences. They're picked up. They're rocked. They're kissed. They're comforted. They're changed. They're fed. They're encouraged thousands of times. And the baby, that's just in one night. (laughs) And the baby internalizes that. Their bad experience is transformed into a good experience. And as that happens every day, as the baby grows, with each problem of hunger, wet diaper, and aloneness, the baby gains hope that mom and dad are going to come meet that need. The baby now has optimistic expectation because it has a history. And then after nine months, they only make an irritable sound when they want attention. And if it doesn't come as they expect it will come, as it has come in the past, when you walk in their room, they're up on the rails looking right at that door, fully expecting you're going to come in. They're hopeful because you've been doing this for nine months. Now, people with a walk with God have a history. They've they've seen God do enough things that even in the place of Job, they can say, though he slay me, I will trust him. So hope has everything to do with the past, with what you've experienced. On the other hand, there are plenty of you here who may find yourself at a place emotionally, business, relationally, and you have no hope. And the reason you have no hope in that particular area is because you've never experienced that area of life being transformed by any experience. Maybe you grew up in a home where you were hurting or in pain or conflict all the time, and nothing good ever came out of it. It was never transformed. And so you learned early to give up. Your ability to have hope is determined by what kind of history you have in that particular area of life. Good, good thought there. Third misconception about hope, that all hopelessness is always bad. Not true. Now, if I'd been playing golf with this guy who was dating a woman eight years who's extremely controlling, I'd have tried to get him hopeless about the relationship. I'd try to get him move on. I've done that with ladies in here, trying to get them to move on. Because as you attempt to do the same old, same old, and nothing's changing, that's the definition of insanity. Everybody knows that. It's doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So for eight years, he just did the same thing, hoping things would change. But he had to come to a place of hopelessness so that he could stop what he was doing that wasn't working. And for God's sake, at least try something new. It's kind of good to realize that continual repetition of a bad life cycle is hopeless. And so sometimes you need to come to what the Bible says is the end of ourselves. You've done everything yourself. You've tried to make it work. You've tried to fix it. You've tried to get free. You've tried to overcome. And in your own strength, you fail and you fail. At some point, you have to say, I quit. I can't do this. That's a good place of hopelessness. Because now you can put your hope in someone who can give you the power to overcome. 
And now you're willing to look at a new option. So let's talk about where hope does come from. Number one, character. Proverbs 15, verse 18, the way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. If you're going to go to Dallas today, you pretty much have hope getting there. There's a highway that'll take you right there. It's pretty hopeful then that you can get there. But what if there was no highway, just rough hills, ditches, trees, etc.? Would you have a lot of hope then? The Bible says there is a path for the future, but that path has a lot to do with who you are as a person and who you depend on and who we put our hope in and what their character is like. The Bible says a guy with bad character is like, is like a, a man with a broken tooth. Can't chew. It hurts. Or leaning on somebody with a broken foot. They'll fall over. They'll let you down. Character is very important. It has a lot to do with who we are. If your life, for example, if your life depended, your life depended on somebody making a 12-foot putt in golfing, who would you want to put your hope in to make that putt? Phil Mickelson or Ricky G? Thank you. That wouldn't take a real smart person to figure out. I never played golf. So the path of the upright has hope. See, Phil is upright in the golfing world. He's got a history of character, proven skill, and ability. He's the guy you want to make that life-saving putt. But let's say, on the other hand, you have a friend with a hopeless life, and you know the only thing that's going to turn them around is if they meet God and, have, and God has some kind of an intervention in their life. And let's say you only have one shot at it, and they come and visit one Sunday, and it's your only shot. Who do you want talking to him, Phil Mickelson or Ricky? You see, the Bible says we develop character that can live life, then we can have hope for the future. Uh, a very wealthy man once told me in Savannah, Georgia, many, many years ago on a plane, he said, I make investments. But he said, Rick, I don't invest in organizations, I invest in the people that run them. He said, when I know somebody and I know their makeup and I know their character and I know their ability, I, I don't have to hear the pitch. I know they're not foolish. I know they're not unethical because they have a proven history of achievement and a walk with me, so I will bet on certain people, and so will God. God always has hope betting on people when you have this proven character. But would you put your hope in an unfaithful man? Not a chance. Why would God bet on somebody like that? He tells us don't bet on somebody like that. Part of what hope is about is, am I in the growth process in becoming the kind of person that can make a marriage work, the kind of person that can make a career work, the kind of person who can make resources that God gives me bear fruit? And if I am, the path of the upright gives hope. Here's, here's the second one, Proverbs 13, verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is like a tree of life. Now, we think that wishes and longings are the same, but longings are what you can't live without. Wishes you can live without. I wish, I wish a lot of things. I wish I was 29, but I ain't going to get it. You know, a part of the longings you can't live without that God made you for is to love, to be loved, to have a sense of direction in life and security, to be in some measure of control in life to be able to express your talent and your gifting. Those are longings. That's what the soul is made out of. 
That's not a new Lexus. That won't do it. And the Bible says if we're not having those basic longings met, we start to die. We become hopeless. But if we begin to have those needs met, they become a tree of life in us. Now, that means I don't have to continually depend on Sunday for a fix from my problems. I'm able to take Sunday with me Monday through Saturday. I've got a tree of life inside because over my life, God has met those longings and given me hope for the future. I have a history with Him. I have value now. I have a sense of self-worth. I have a, a time to use my gift and my ability. God's given that to me. I know I'm valued. I know I'm precious in His sight. I know I'm the apple of His eye. I know I'm the righteousness of God. I know He's given me a hope and a future. I know what God has said about me. How in the world can I feel hopeless? I can't. How could you if you knew that? See, God wants to meet those longings in your heart, and a new, a new Ferrari won't do it. More money in the bank won't do it. A hotter body won't do it. <laughs> say, are you against a hotter body? No, but it won't do it. What I'm trying to say is ask people like that. So God, here's the third one, Proverbs 15, verse 24. The path of life leads up for the wise to keep him from going down to the grave. Now, we've said so far, I've got to develop character. I've got to have God-given inner longings fulfilled. But I also have to have wisdom to know what I'm doing in life. The path of the wise leads up. So, whatever situation you're in right now that you don't have hope for, are you gaining any new wisdom about it? Ask for it. Listen to James 1, verse 5. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men liberally and will not withhold. So God has put wisdom in His principles. God has put wisdom in men, in women, in books, in His Word. And some of you may be trying to do the same old, same old without new information. And you're never going to have hope. And it's never going to change. If you're in a hopeless business situation, have you asked for advice from a professional in that particular field? Are there some options that you could exercise that might remedy the problem? See, it'll stay hopeless to you unless you get some wisdom, some new information. Uh, Bill and Maureen Sitter, to mention one couple, put on financial freedom seminars here, free, to help people get out of debt bondage and learn how to handle money. But do people go? Some do, some don't. You can't help a man that refuses wisdom. You just have to back off and let him drown. You can't help him. You've got to be able to get new wisdom because there's not one financial problem that over time with right principles cannot be eradicated and made right. There's not one marriage situation in general that cannot be made right or improved with new information. Any of you guys ever learned anything in your marriage that sort of helped it? Like, for me, it was like, I'd rather be happy than be right. Well, you do your own thing, I'll do my thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a lot happier because of it. I just don't have to be right all the time. Well, those are, what a simple thing. There's so many interesting principles like that. You think, I could do that. Well, yeah, you could do that. And God wants you to do that. But you've got to have some new information. You can't just keep doing the same thing and hope your wife will love you or hope your money's going to turn around 
I hope you'll quit getting fired from jobs because you're lazy, you don't show up, you always have a bad attitude, and you wonder why you're always laid off. That's got to change, and it won't change until you change. So it's going to stay hopeless unless you get some new information. So Dr. Cloud asked this guy on the golf course, have you ever thought about telling this woman she's got 90 days to go and figure out this control issue and go see somebody about it and get help or you're gone? That was new information. The guy said, no, I thought I was supposed to be long-suffering. Dr. Cloud said eight years is long-suffering. This guy didn't have wisdom to set limits, and everybody ought to set some limits because you're dealing with people, not God here. You girls, if you're going with a guy, dating a guy eight years, and you want a marriage and a home and a family, but he wants all the goodies, but he doesn't want to get married, you have to set some limit to say, I'm not going to throw away my youth and my body and my future for a guy who won't commit to me. Now, I can't tell you what that line is for you, but you have to decide, or you just throw your life away. I would not do it, and I would never tell you to do it. I would tell you, as soon as you know this person is refusing to make, you could give a person a time limit. You could say, if we don't get counseling about this issue in your life, it could be anything. If we don't get some, some control on this and get some help together, I'm out of here. Now, that's at least a new thing to try to bring a resolution to, to a conflict, but it's not going to get better just doing the same thing and the same thing. And then in some cases, there has to be a place where if this abuse, if you hit me, if any of this happens, I'm out of here. Now that we've had a clear conversation about it and we both understand the boundaries and parameters, there's a limit. This is a good thing. Some of you don't have any limits at all. The guy said, well, I didn't know that. So he didn't have wisdom to set limits. This was new information to a hopeless problem that could turn it around. And if it didn't turn around, go find another girl. Get yourself a new bus, Gus, right? Just do something else. Absolutely. Girls, same thing about a guy. And as you learn new principles of wisdom, then you have hope. I never met anybody that came to this church who had a problem, an addiction, a relational problem, a financial problem that was hopeless. They've had some bad problems, but none of them were hopeless. Hopelessness is not on my screen. How can you serve, as Corinthians says, the God of all hope and be hopeless? It may be difficult, it may be painful, but it's not hopeless. And how can you say that, Rick, that hopelessness is not on your screen? Because after nearly 71 years, I've learned enough of God's principles. I've had training. I've had rebuke. I've lived long enough through enough problems to know the path is totally hopeful. Why am I so hopeful you can be made well if you want to? Not because I'm smarter, but I know wisdom principles that maybe you're either ignoring or don't know. And, you know, the difference in seasons in your life is wisdom. The difference between success and failure, wisdom. The difference between uh, people is usually wisdom, something you don't know. And once you know it, boom, the bar jumps up higher. You suddenly, you go to a new level. You've, it was there, it's free, but you didn't know it. That's why you want to talk to people who are successful in the field you're struggling with to have hope. How are you going to have hope talking to somebody broker in the Ten Commandments? How are you going to talk to somebody that can't hold a job or can't stay married? How are you going to get any hope talking about that? You can't. It's not being unchristian. It's being smart. Wisdom is a gift from God. 
And he says, I don't put a limit on how smart you can be, and apparently not how dumb you can be. Stupidity just doesn't seem to have any limit. And you talk to people, and you meet people, and we counsel people, and I'm thinking, this is easy to fix. But you've got to be able to humble yourself and say, I'm not acting smart. I'm going to change this thing. I'm going to turn it around. And it's a gift from God because He's the source of all wisdom, right? I don't know where you are today, but it's not as hopeless as you think. You, you may just have limited information. Why? Because the path of wisdom is up. You're going to be climbing. You're going to elevate yourself. You're going to get out of that ditch. Life's going to get better as you learn wisdom. Proverbs 1-7 says, wisdom is the principal thing. With all you're getting, get some smarts. Get wisdom. This is from God. Oh, shabababa, yeah, yeah, yama. Get smart, turkey. You can be dumb as a rock and speak in tongues. You can be ecstatic, you can go praise the Lord, blow a whistle, wave a white hanky, run all over this building, and be dumb as a rock. You've got to have wisdom to succeed in life, in marriage. My people are destroyed for lack of wisdom, knowledge. When they picked out seven deacons in the book of Acts, they said, find seven men full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. See? You can be full of the Holy Spirit and still dumb. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you charismatic. I'm a charismatic. I'm a Spirit-filled believer. I believe in all the gifts of the Spirit. But I'm going to tell you something. A smart man will defeat uh, a babbling charismatic who's dumb. He'll eat your lunch. Wisdom will triumph over your strength. You get a smart man that's wise, has been around a long time, he'll eat your lunch. You, you're so tough and strong and young. It takes years to build some experience and get wisdom from God learning from what didn't work, and I'm not ever going to do that again in my marriage. I'm not ever going to do that again in my money. I'm not. Now you're getting wisdom. That's a painful process, but it's a good one. So talk to people who've been around a little bit longer than you, you know, and find out, is this a good path or not a good path? How's this deal working for you? When I get out of the area of my gifting, I want counsel. I want people to talk to me. I don't care. I'll, I'll make the call, but give me some wisdom. If it's, if it's real estate, if it's finance, if it's some kind of, you got to work a contract on amateurization and how it would affect the church, I need help. I need counsel. That's not my gift. You know, give me something to kill. Give me something to shoot. Give me something to lead. Give me something, to, somebody to lift up. I'm fine. I'm your guy, but uh, spreadsheets, I don't, I, I hate that. That's well, not a gift, but guess what? God puts people around you that have that gift. Your gift helps them. Their gift helps you. And together we can do great things together. But you're not going to do it on your own. Quit trying to make life work on your own. It's not going to work. And number four, here's the last one. You've got to be connected to the one who can make these first three things happen. The source of all hope. Proverbs 23, verse 17 and 18. Do not envy sinners, but always fear the Lord. For surely you have a future ahead of you. Your hope will not be disappointed. You know, when I was 27 years old, in a rock and roll band, dropped out of college, I found that I didn't have the character to make life work. I wanted to, but I couldn't do it on my own. I tried. I didn't have any life longings that were met. I didn't understand how to make life work. So being in a hopeless place and sick and tired of being sick and tired, I cried out to God to help me and invited Him into my life. 
And I can tell you today that as I face difficult situations, maybe it would appear to someone to be a hopeless situation, I know there's a God who will give me all three of these hope builders. And I'm continually dependent on the one who has all the answers, and it ain't me. I know it's Him. And these first three things we've talked about that build and foster hope can't work without God because He's the one that made those things, and He's the one that made you. So we can ultimately never gain the character, the wisdom, the knowledge, the experience until we're connected to the one who made all of that. Otherwise, you're hoping for all the wrong things, things that don't fit you because you're not who you're supposed to be. Only the Lord has a right to tell you who you are, and He will put the right desires in your heart that are right for you. And when you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart because He put them there. They're good. They're not fake. You have hope in them. That's a good thing. And until then, you may live a hopeless life because you're living somebody else's life, not the one God made you to live. Have you ever looked back at some person or something and you thought you wanted it real bad and that you just couldn't live without it, but now you're thankful to God you didn't get it? Oh, I'm glad you didn't answer that prayer. See, God knows best for you and me. He's for you, not against you. One last thought as we approach Christmas next week, and hope. Uh, Christmas tells us that light and hope come from unexpected places. Listen to Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. And what's so strange about how God sent His Son is that He sent Him as a baby through Galilee. It says in Isaiah 9, verse 1, in the past he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. I think the reason that's so strange is because Galilee was so despised, especially Nazareth in Galilee where Jesus grew up and came from. There was a common saying in their day, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Muleshoe, Texas. Anybody heard about any big breakthroughs? No, because everybody knew Nazareth was this redneck, podunk, backwater town in a part of the country that was despised by everybody. Nothing good could come out of there. And for us, it's kind of like saying, we know how great things happen, and we know where great things happen. Great things happen in New York, London, Paris, Tokyo, the Silicon Valley, but great things don't happen in Duckville, Tennessee. That's how our world thinks. That's exactly why God sends His Son as a little baby, born to poor parents, born to an unwed mother, in an animal feed trough. And He was raised in a podunk, redneck, backwater town called Nazareth. Now, why does God do it? I think to remind us every Christmas season there's always hope, no matter how hopeless your situation seems because the world is always writing people off, saying that kind of a person never changes, this kind of a situation never gets better, this kind of a situation, nah, there's no hope for that. We're always writing people off and writing things off. God reminds us through Christmas that He loves to go into situations that look the darkest, the most hopeless, the most unlikely, the most unexpected, and that's where He loves to do miracles. Light and salvation come through Galilee, not Rome not New York. This means no matter where you're from, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done, or how hopeless you think your situation is, God loves to make His light break through 
in unlikely and dark places. Christmas reminds us there's always hope because anything is possible with God and nothing is impossible with God. Christmas reminds us the world is a dark place. Nevertheless, because of Jesus, light has dawned. He's the light of the world. Hope has come. A child was born. A son was given. He will usher in justice and peace. He will defeat evil and darkness, and death will not have the last word. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. Anything is possible. Nothing is impossible. And that's why we celebrate. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.